Thank you for listening to Voices Unheard Podcast, a podcast production of Physician Just Equity. Amplifying voices to cultivate cultural change. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Melissa Blaker and Dr. Pringle Miller. Welcome. I'm Dr. Melissa Blaker. Thank you for joining us today on Voices Unheard Podcast. And I'm Dr. Pringle Miller, your co-host. And it's my honor to introduce today a friend and a colleague and a partner in crime, Dr. Melissa Red Huffman. She is an acute care surgeon in Asheville, North Carolina. She's board certified in general surgery, surgical critical care, and hospice and palliative medicine. She serves um, as the surgical clerkship director for the University of North Carolina Asheville campus and also works as an associate hospice medical director for Care Partners Hospice. She is a writer, prolific writer, whose work has been featured in JAMA, General Surgery News, Kevin MD, and Doximity. She is the creator and host of the Surgical Palliative Care Podcast and the co-founder, a co-founder of the recently formed Surgical Palliative Care Society, which is where we are partners in crime. Welcome, Red. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to see you, Pringle, and really nice to meet you, Melissa. Nice to meet you too. And I just want to say that Red is actually the reason that we, that Pringle and I are able to do this podcast very early on in this journey. We got together with her because we knew that she recorded the Surgical Palliative Care podcast and she gave us kind of all the tricks of the trade, helped us to get our feet wet and to know where to start and what resources to log into. So I thank you for that. You are responsible for why we're here today doing this. So thank you for doing that. Well, you're welcome. And I've been really enjoying listening to your podcast. It's been awesome. Likewise. Thank you. So let's get started. I have the privilege of starting the conversation with you. And, you know, one of the things that I've really admired about you, Red, is your willingness to be vulnerable in the writings that you've published. I'm sort of speaking primarily of your piece of my mind in JAMA, and you recently had a new one that we're going to focus on a little bit. But, you know, you've had a lot of tragedy and trauma in your life, and it's probably not a coincidence that you're a trauma surgeon as a result of that. So we're going to go into that a little bit. But if you could sort of start with telling us a little bit about your journey through the unfortunate death, murder, and violence trauma around your father, and recently your partner who was a victim of blunt trauma, and you also have unfortunately been stricken with COVID-19 and have had some health issues related to that. So we'd sort of just like to hear from you about how those pivotal events in your life have really shaped you as a person and as a surgeon. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying, I think I've just been, I really believe we're all born into this world with a certain disposition. And I am grateful that I was born into the world with the disposition that I have, which is, I think for the most part, I see the world as um, the glass is half full rather than half empty. So I think that I've just been lucky like that because I've actually spoken with other people and they say, wow, I would have turned to so much hatred if my father had been killed by an Islamic fundamentalist, I would have hated everyone. And to me, that kind of sentiment never, ever, ever made sense in my life. Like you said, you know, my dad was killed when I was 19 years old. And I've spoken a lot about my grief journey 
which took me so long to articulate because it happened when I was 19. And I think when we are teenagers and young adults, we really don't have the language to speak about how we're feeling. And so for me, a lot of those feelings ended up being somaticized and kind of ended up with a a lot of uh, weird health problems, which I really believe were directly related to the fact that I just did not know how to process my emotions. But through processing my emotions over the years, I became very interested first in mental health and and then in physical health. And so eventually I ended up going to school to be a naturopathic doctor because that was the first person who really helped me, which makes sense because naturopaths are so holistic. So I think she really was trying to heal both my body and my kind of spirit and soul. And then eventually through that journey ended up deciding I wanted to be a surgeon and went to medical school. And then once I went to medical school, I think I was very interested in trauma and then in residency became very interested in surgical critical care. One, because of how my dad died, but two, I became very, very interested in the process of what happens after someone dies, because that's my experience, right? I mean, my dad was killed tragically, but then he was dead. And so then I and my family, not just my immediate family, my extended family, and all these people who loved him were like left to grieve. And so what happens in that process? I became very interested in that. And I found myself spending so much time in the ICU with families, right? Because most of the patients in the ICU can't really spend a lot of meaningful time with because most of them are intubated and sedated. But I got very interested in the grief that the families were going through. And I think that really led me to one, want to pursue a career in trauma and critical care, but two, was like really the draw to pursue extra training in hospice and palliative medicine. And so that's kind of my journey from how I got here. And then I thought I was kind of, you know, on a great track and had really worked to combine for me hospice and palliative medicine into my career as an acute care surgeon. And then about a little over six months ago now, my boyfriend, long-term partner of five years, fell off a ladder and had a traumatic brain injury. And that really, like I wrote about in JAMA, I everything I thought I knew, I was like, Oof, I don't know anything because the, the trauma of watching someone you love suffer has been like nothing else I've ever experienced. It's so painful. And unlike the deaths that I've been used to in my life, which have all been very sudden, this is not a death. This is just a ongoing process of suffering. And so learning how to sit with that suffering, especially as as a caregiver and as a trauma surgeon and wanting to fix everything has really pushed my limits of resiliency. And I speak very freely about this. I have felt very pushed up against my limits because there's a so much frustration between trying to find the balance of being a partner and being a caregiver, and then also realizing how broken our healthcare system is. I mean, I already knew how broken it was somewhat because, you know, I work in it. But then seeing as a patient and a caregiver how very broken it is and how challenging it is to find well-coordinated care and how literally every single time I interact with the system, whether it's at a physician office or a lab or a pharmacy, there's something wrong. Now, of course, I always catch it because I'm crazy and detail oriented, and I think a great advocate, but it really just brings up so much sadness 
about how are my patients and their families dealing with that? So I've been spending a lot of time thinking like, well, what's going to be my next project? Like, all right, now I'm very clear that this is an issue. How am I going to fix this? And so I've been daydreaming a lot about that. And then, like you said, on top of it, I got COVID. So I was diagnosed three weeks after my second shot at the end of January. And, you know, I'm kind of pushing into that, depending on how you define long COVID, kind of pushing up against that right now with a lot of symptoms that are very challenging to explain and a workup that would suggest there's not much wrong. Because again, I realize I'm very blessed and I, because I work in the healthcare system and I have very good insurance, I've been able to get every test possible, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, taking a shower feels like an act of God sometimes. So it's been a very, very challenging six to seven months for me, but I have found that writing about it and then also just talking about it and being very open and honest about like, this is where I'm at. These are my boundaries and limits right now. And this is the best I can do. And I trust that it will get better with time. That's kind of how I'm taking it every day. Thank you for sharing all that. And, you know, even just that brief introduction for our listeners is one reason we wanted to have you on the show is just because of your openness with kind of journeying through things and then being able to tag along and be able to explain your emotional response to those things. I think that's why people resonate with your writing. And the article that you referenced was the one from March 2021 and JAMA titled uh, Trauma Comes Home, where you talk about some of these experiences and your how you've had to go through them, but then also how you've had to emotionally respond to them. And I can relate because my mom actually in December of 2020 got diagnosed with COVID and wound up having to be hospitalized. I wound up becoming the surrogate caregiver because I was the one in the family that had the knowledge enough to interact with the, the physicians, though I was the liaison between my dad, who was the next of kin and, and the caregivers. And, you know, that process became very, very frustrating on a lot of levels, but she wound up needing to be intubated about two weeks after her diagnosis. And then she got put on ECMO and then she wound up passing away, you know, after a prolonged ICU stay. Oh, so sorry. So, yeah, thank you. So it was being a provider in that scenario becomes very frustrating for all the reasons you just explained. And I think that a lot of us were busy and we're doing these things along with the busy life. So it's hard to kind of wrestle with the personal emotional response to all that because you primarily put on the cap of caregiver provider when you have to to some degree fix this situation. But when you can't do that, I don't know that very many people are able to express the way that you do so eloquently your response to that and then how you have how you're working through that process. So one part of that article that I want to talk about specifically is a quote, and I'm going to read it here. It says, up to this point in my career, I had falsely prided myself on my ability to maintain grace under pressure. Among other things, I had managed to make peace with my father's murderer, and I had emerged from the experience with my heart open and my spirit intact. And you kind of just spoke on this, but just to dive into it a little bit more, but most of us cannot imagine living through this type of tragedy, but you did far greater by coming through the situation, making peace with your father's murderer. And and life tragedy often comes and it leaves us with many emotions. And you share this in the article of pain, hurt, sadness, anger. So I'm curious, uh, where did you find the strength to forgive the person that brought upon this tragedy to your family? And how do you emerge with an open heart and an intact spirit? Well, again, one thing I think it is my disposition. And two, as you're reading that back to me, it just made me think of my dad. Like, what would have he wanted for me? And I think what he would have wanted for me was 
to be happy and healthy and to find some peace. And for probably the first 10 years after he died, I felt very much like many of my decisions were driven by, were coming out of a place of trying to honor his memory. I I don't necessarily like, you know, now it's been 25 years. I don't necessarily feel that that my decisions are that closely associated with him anymore. Though, of course, I hope that he's proud of me. But I, I really felt like I really wanted to honor his memory. And I thought the best way of honoring his memory was like having a heart full of love because he was this person that was full of life and full of love. And so to me, it just seemed very intuitive. Now, I'll also say like I also happened to have a lot of blessings in that time. Like I have this extended family. So I was like surrounded by a lot of love. And then also, because it happened in such a faraway place, it happened in Cairo, Egypt, it was a little easy to separate myself from it. Who knows if it would have happened in the town next to mine, it might have, my anger might have been placed elsewhere. I also intuitively knew that anger was a real dangerous emotion for me. You know, I've kind of gone in and out of struggling with having periods of of deep sadness in my life. And, and, you know, they always say about depression is that's like depression is anger turns inward. And like, I really didn't feel like anger had a lot of, I did not have a lot of room for anger in my life because I didn't want to be putting it on myself. And so again, I really just felt like the most life affirming thing to do was to just create more life and more and more good. And I don't know who taught me that no one ever like it wasn't like I had an experience before that taught me that it was just probably really my dad's spirit guiding me and my being open to being guided like that. And it's very funny because my partner and I talk about it a lot. Because when he hears that story, he's like, Oh, my God, I would have gone and blown up the entire country. I mean, I'm like, I'm always grateful that happened to someone like me that was able to like kind of just make something good out of it rather than someone that created more anger, right? Because we see in our patients, I mean, we have some like very angry, violent patients. And I always think what happened to them? I mean, something happened to them to make them so angry. And so I feel just so grateful that I that I didn't take that path. But again, I think a lot of it was just I was just blessed with so much love around me that if I was in a different family in a different place, it could have turned out very differently. And and I realized that I, I think that I, I do have like a lot of blessings in my life that al- allowed me to do that. But what I'll say is now I have a lot of anger and a lot of frustration around my current situation. And I wonder if because it's so fresh and new and continuing to happen. So I find myself angry constantly. Like I'm so, and I hate this. I'm so angry at our medical system. I'm like furious that it is so hard to get good care and well-coordinated care. And I find myself angry at some of the providers that we see. And I just, yeah, feel way more anger than I've ever felt in my life. And I'm sure I take some of my partner's anger and then kind of internalize it as well. And again, like I said at the beginning, I'm trying to figure out what's like a, what's a positive, what what can I do to change the system so that like other people don't have to feel like that? Pringle, that's the next project we can work on. <laughs> I, 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 I'm just like, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I, I do feel like like there has to be an answer there somewhere. This should not have to be so hard. And yet it's so hard every single day to interact with our medical system. And that's coming from someone who 
knows a lot of people in this town and isn't shy to ask for favors. I mean, I will call anyone and ask and I have been and, and people say yes to me too. So that's coming from someone who has those blessings to be a part of the system. The fact that I'm struggling so much just tells me that something's very wrong. Yeah. And I will say, you know, just to kind of tag onto that, this podcast actually was birthed in the middle of my mom being in the ICU because I was so frustrated that I felt that medical providers weren't listening to patients. And I'm like, if they're not listening to me as a patient, this goes into the fact that I don't feel like they're listening to us as providers talking about the troubles that we're having within our own system. And so that's part of why I wanted to do this podcast is to give people a voice to talk about these things that nobody else wants to pay attention to. Because I think that because of the way the healthcare system is structured, we're all stressed, we're all overworked, we all have so much responsibility on us. We're not taught how to deal with the grief of just the day-to-day life, you know, watching patients struggle with illness and and die and all those type of things. And so that gets turned into this somewhat hardness, you know, that there and that hardness makes us not really listen to our patients. You know, we give them the information we need, we give them the care they need, but we're not really listening to their needs. And so I think like part of the solution is just stopping and listening to people, listening to their stories. And that's kind of where the the idea, you know, there's a, several things that played into where the idea for this podcast came from, but that was one of the things that actually pushed me to making it happen during that period of time. But I think it's important to remember too, because I think like, all right, well, what can I do differently? So one thing that I do, and I've done this before, but now I just do it all the time is I always give everyone my cell phone number. And I just say like, if you're, If you're like hitting a wall, just call me because it's probably easier for me to figure it out, even though the system's challenging, than for some random patient to figure it out. And I have found, I've given out my phone number since I was a naturopath. I mean, for over 20 years, I've given people my phone number and I've literally had one person call me where I thought I was like, dude, this is like not appropriate. But, you know, in all those years, I, I have, I have been lucky or I'm giving it out to the right people that like I haven't found patients or families abusing it. But the reality is, is like my giving my phone number isn't going to fix the whole problem because what I find is they call me and then I will spend, I mean, sometimes I'll spend up to 45 minutes trying to solve their problem. Now that's fine. I feel like I get compensated very well. I could spend that 45 minutes of time. But like the reality is, is like the reason I have to spend 45 minutes of time is because everyone's trying to like operate on a shoestring. Really, there should be more support. You know, we should be paying more support staff to like do these things. Like it's not the best use of anyone's time to spend 45 minutes on a problem. Part of the reason I have to spend 45 minutes is I don't even understand how these some systems work. Like how do you contact the radiologist to get a mammogram at this place? Well, I don't know that. And I'm not sure that's I'm supposed to know that, but there should be someone in in the healthcare system you work that could probably figure that out in five minutes. And so that's the other place where I struggle. Yes, individually, I think probably all of us want to do our best to help the patients. But like if we're working in a system that doesn't support us and doesn't hear what we're saying, then we're we're still going to end up getting burnt out because we only have so much energy and so much time. Well, I think one of the problems is fundamental to the way that physicians are educated. And we're really educated around disease. We're not really educated around patient-centered care. Um, And I think one of the reasons that, Red, you and I found each other in hospice and palliative medicine is that we recognize, and from your 
naturopathic background, you know, we recognize that care really does have to do with what the care is that a patient wants. And a lot of that revolves around listening to patients because you can't know what they want unless you talk to them and listen to them. And one of the things that I remember hearing from Melissa in the time frame of her mother's illness and being in the hospital is just how difficult it was for her to be even able to contact a clinician who was pivotal to her mother's care team and have a conversation. I mean, so it shouldn't be that you need to be a doctor to be able to get the ear of the the doctors of your loved one. But as a doctor, she still couldn't get the ear of the doctors who were taking care of her mother. And when she did, it was antagonistic. So it wasn't even collaborative when she was having those conversations. I mean, she's highly skilled and trained. She knows about ECMO as a cardiothoracic surgery resident. You know, she is a pediatrician. She's, she's a person who's been in the, in the clinical world for a period of time. And she wasn't even able to have like a reasonable discourse with the folks that were taking care of her mother as a person who could really talk to them on their level. And that was really hard to hear. And doing it from a distance because of COVID and because of different states made it even more difficult. But so it's, it, is, it is really frustrating. I think that if we want to see a different kind of communication and system, it really has to be centered on patients. And the way that the system is so complicated and convoluted, it is impossible to navigate as a person who doesn't know how to navigate it because you're not on the inside. But even as somebody on the inside, as you pointed out, it's difficult to navigate. So it's not set up for wellness and patient care and whole patient care. So that kind of brings me to another topic, which I think is really dear to our hearts and things that we think about is this dichotomy between your empathetic self, bringing your empathetic self to the table and bringing your clinical self to the table and how they interface and that they don't need to be mutually exclusive because, you know, one of the things that I found really intriguing that people would say to me about the dichotomy of surgery and and hospice and palliative care is, aren't those like opposite ends of the spectrum? And, you know, how can you integrate those two things together? Because isn't it a really different sort of framework and way to practice? And, and of course, it's not, you know, I mean, what, what we're trying to say in the surgical palliative care community is that these things are really necessary to each other and well integrated with each other. And so maybe you could say a few words about getting back to your article, because you made some statements about maintaining a professional, I mean, not that you maintain a professional detachment, but how do you avoid sort of clinical paralysis if you are empathetic with your patients, if you're able to cry with your patients and, and be emotional with your patients? You know, how, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's, it, it's, um, it's interesting. It's not something that I feel like I struggle with that much, even though I feel like my palliative care self and my surgery self are completely, they are completely integrated. When I am in the operating room or I'm in the ICU and someone needs like an emergent central line, I don't think twice. I just say, take a deep breath and this is what we're doing. You know, I'll just, I, I will always say, I'm sorry, 
this might hurt for a second or if they're awakened, like something needs to happen. But I just know that I it, it needs to get done. Now, part of that is probably because surgery training is so long that it's just drilled into you like this, an emergent situation, it has to happen. That being said, I'll often find myself also in the trauma bay when someone else is, say, the one who's, I might be like running the show, but someone else is doing the procedures. I'll often find myself running the show while standing right next to the patient holding their hands, you know, so that like I am trying, aware of everything, but I'm also trying to give comfort at the same time. You know, Pringle, you and I have spoken a little bit about in the operating room, it is a little bit different because once that blue sheet goes up, there is kind of that barrier between anesthesia and the patient's face and airway and ourselves, and it's just time to get to work. I'll say the times that I struggle the most are when I either quote unquote know, or I just have a sense that this is not what the patient would want. And that's when I feel really sad. And I'll still do it because let's say the patient was not able to speak for themselves and the surrogate decision maker or the healthcare power of attorney you know, that that's what they said. And, and I'm going to honor that. But that's where I where I just feel awful. And the other times where I feel real awful is, you know, I think we all as physicians have a sense when things aren't going to end well. I think those of us who work in the ICU have that that sense is even a little more fine tuned because we like see it every single day. And then I think those who work in hospice and palliative medicine and are around so much death and dying also know when, when death is near. And so during those situations, I just find sometimes I will just have a really hard time being enthused about, about doing something. And, and, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll speak up and, and we may be able to change course, but there are those situations where the family members are, it's emergent. The family members are saying this and, or things haven't been discussed. And of course the, oftentimes the, it's kind of do everything until we can kind of get someone on the phone. And so those are the times I, I really, I struggle. The rest just feels like a continuity of care because I'm your surgeon and I'm also your physician. And sometimes I'm your friend as well, or your support system. And I can be all those things. So I may have just cut you and caused you some pain, but that was in the service of doing something that you wanted or the or your family wanted. And we felt that it was going to bring some some good about. And so, okay, we do that. And now I'm here to take care of you after. And if then it turns out things didn't go as planned, then we're going to switch course and I'll be with you towards those next steps. And if that means my being at your bedside when you're dying, I'm happy to be there too. I mean, to me, that's, there's a lot of joy to be able to be there through all of those steps. You know, that whole idea, like Dr. Dunn always talks about like, you know, patient non-abandonment, like the ability to be there through everything, I, I think is, pretty awesome. And to do a good job, to do a good job in the operating room, but do just a good, as good a job while they're taking their last breaths. Yeah, I think that it's great that you're able to wear all those hats and that you find joy in that, you know, you find joy in being kind of that provider that's able to be there with your patients. And that kind of leads me into this concept that I've heard you talk about is showing up and getting involved. And you're a big believer in this concept. And I know that you work with residents and you often tell them there's power just in showing up and getting involved. So from your perspective, what is one event that you are so glad that you showed up for and you got involved with and how has that impacted your life? Sure. So I was thinking about this this morning. It's 
two events and they're related. So first of all, showing up to my first clinical Congress for the American College of Surgeons. I think for me, that was, I just remember feeling so scared. I mean, I don't know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's like being at a rock concert for surgeons, right? You're seeing all these people and faces that you've just read about and read their books and heard their lectures. And just kind of showing up there for me was a big deal. But what I am particularly proud of is, you know, when I when I was a young resident, and I was interested, became interested in surgical palliative care, there really wasn't that much out there. It's, it was very hard to know where to turn, which is one of the reasons I think Pringle and myself and um, Buddy Martyr want to start the Surgical Palliative Care Society is to kind of mentor these younger people coming up. But through a lot of research, I found out that the American College of Surgeons has this committee on surgical palliative care. And so I think the second clinical Congress that I went to in 2016, I just like did some research and I found, oh, Dr. Mosenthal is the head of this committee and who's like, you know, the administrator. And so I, I just emailed the administrator and I was like, hey, can you ask Dr. Mosenthal if I can just come to this meeting? And I had no idea how the meeting worked, who were the members were how the members were chosen. And I heard back from the administrator and, and um, the administrator at the time said, yeah, she said you can show up. And I just started showing up to that meeting. And for three years in a row, I just asked for permission. I wasn't like on the committee. Committee was like capped at 10 people or something, but I just showed up and gave my opinion. And, you know, that changed the trajectory of my whole life, I think, because that really introduced me to the leaders of the surgical palliative care movement. And, you know, the first two years, I don't think anyone knew who I was or why the hell I was there, but it kind of let me into like how things work in the college and how things were kind of working in the world of, of surgical palliative care. And, and then eventually I got to become a member. But I think that experience experience. And again, I think Pringle would echo that is like, I don't want that experience for other people. I don't want it to be such a closed door. I want everyone who's interested in, in whatever field, but we'll talking about surgical palliative care. I want everyone who's interested in surgical palliative care to like be invited to the party right away. And to like, say like, Hey, there's enough room for everyone to make a difference here and for everyone to have a seat at the table. And so I think for me, that's a huge driver of starting this society. But I would say to people that there is a lot of power to showing up because someone told me it's not about who you know, it's about who knows you, right? I mean, that's how we get things done in life. It's like, who knows me? And the only way for people to know me is for them to like see my face, you know, whether in person or virtually. And the way they're going to do that is if I get out of bed and like show up. And I will say that I am an introvert at heart, even though I put on a great game face and, and definitely enjoy being social. Sometimes I'm my happy place is in my bed or in my hotel bed if I'm traveling. And it takes a lot for me of like, I'm always very anxious before I go to meetings. And so I just look at it like a job. And like, if I want to accomplish something, then I have to push myself. And, and so I would just encourage other people to do that. And I encourage my residents to do that all the time. Like, don't wait for it. Just show up. What's the worst thing they're going to do? They're going to say you're not invited and throw you out. It's like not, it's not that big of a deal. And also I think as surgeons, like people expect us to be a little pushy. So like we can use that to our advantage. You know, there is a, there is an advantage to being a little pushy and a little bossy. And if that is pushing your way into the room, again, the worst thing is they ask you to leave. 
I love that. And, you know, one of the other things that I think we have in common is sort of taking uncharted paths in our professional journeys. I mean, certainly with you having gone into naturopathy and then segueing into allopathic medicine and, and surgery. And I think, you know, culminating in both of us deciding that there was more to surgery, as our predecessors have said, and taking on hospice and palliative medicine and being both two of about 90 now surgeons in the United States who are board certified in hospice and palliative medicine and about 25 of those who have you know done fellowships. So we don't usually bring literature into our podcast, but I thought it would be fun just because in thinking about our journeys and you know Melissa too. I mean, she's a trailblazer in the sense that she first did pediatrics and then through that developed an interest in congenital heart surgery and is on a path to be a cardiothoracic surgeon who does congenital heart, you know, so we're, we're sort of an unusual trio here. And I, I, th- I thought it would be fun to, to read Robert Frost's poem, which I have really loved over the years. And so if, if you guys would indulge me and the listeners would indulge me, this is a poem by Robert Frost entitled The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted as I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I just have really gotten a lot of strength out of that poem because I feel like I often take the road less traveled. And, um, but I do think that it's made me obviously who I am and made me stronger. And I feel like the two of you are sort of my soulmates in that regard. Yeah. And I think you had said Pringle and when you had sent me some questions, you know, sometimes that road is lonely. And I was reflecting on there have been times in my life where I have felt really lonely. And what I would do is I wouldn't feel part of one group and I wouldn't feel part of the other group. And then in my mind, I'd like almost use the two as like an escape hatch. I love escape hatches. Like, so oh, I wasn't really feeling like part of the surgeon group. So I'd like run to the hospice and palliative medicine group, but then I was too aggressive for them. So I'd run back. And, you know, the trouble with that is you could really avoid making like real deep connections because you're always kind of like running back and forth. And what I found in the last couple of years is I really, I don't feel like that anymore. Part of it is it just happens to be where I landed. Like I just landed with a great surgical group that I feel I just feel a part of, I feel very appreciated for who I am. I think because of the particular field that I do, you know, because I do trauma and critical care and emergency general surgery, I think a lot of my partners also think a lot about 
end of life stuff, you know, they may not be as into it as me, or I may have some extra skills because I did a fellowship, but it's, it's certainly something that they all think about. And so instead of feeling like other now, I just feel, you know, I feel like, I, oh, I have a little extra special sauce sometimes, you know, there's some situations where they'll say, hey, can you just help out with this? Because I have that little bit of extra training. And and it's nice not to feel a little more integrated. But for, for many, 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 many years, I mean, going from the naturopath to the allopath, and then from the surgery to hospice and palliative medicine, I just always was just like couldn't fully commit anywhere. And it just, it feels lonely and awful. But now I think like, I want to like say to all the listeners, I mean, I think there's a lot of power in, in taking your own path and you will find your tribe, stay on your path long enough. And like, you'll find other people on that path too. You know, you just got to like, stay still on that path, like stop running back and forth, stay on your path, keep moving forward. And and you will find other people, you know, there's always going to be someone else who's doing what you're doing, because we're not, none of us are like terminally unique, I think. I like that analogy. And you know, this takes us back to a topic that we talk about a lot on here, um, because I think it's probably one of the keys to help change things in medicine. But it's this concept of mentorship. And I know that you have uh, talked about it in regards to your interactions with trainees. But for you, what are the key aspects of mentorship that you value most? And how would you recommend that people initiate these kind of key relationships? Yeah, I think anyone would agree that like a good mentor is, is they're not trying to make you a mini me, right? They're trying to find what, what your strengths are, and then help you kind of capitalize on those strengths. And I'd say the people in my life that I consider mentors today, the one, or at least the ones I relate to the most are, are those like the ones that they probably, a lot of them don't do anything like I do, but they just see my strengths and like kind of help me capitalize on them. And then, so that's what I really try to do for all of our residents, particularly our younger residents. I'm always like, things are always a- coming across my desk, like great leadership opportunities for this and this and this. So I'm always thinking, oh, that I'm just will say this is good for this one. And this is good for this one. And this is good for this one. And I'm always just trying to offer them like, Hey, think about this. Remind them too that you are enough. I think like especially as a young trainee, like you're like, well, who am I to apply for this? My one of my trainees was just applying for this position in our in our chapter in our North Carolina ACS chapter. And and she's like, "Well, I don't think I qualify." And I'm like, "Like screw that. I mean, like yeah, you qualify. You don't have to be amazing. You'll get amazing by by doing these sort of leadership opportunities. And if you don't want to do this, we'll find something else for you to do. But like, I believe in you. So like, let's just try it again. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're not going to get it. So that sort of mentorship. And then also just, I think because I tend to be so emotionally vulnerable, I think that there are people who feel safe being emotionally vulnerable with me. And I, and I want my office to be that safe place for people. I want people to feel like it's it's okay to be a human being while you're doing this job. Like it's okay to take 10 minutes and have it out or have a cry and then get back to work. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think, you know, again, you've given us so many very key things to think about and to focus on. And I like to give people kind of a nugget of truth. What's one thing that we can boil all this down that we can take with us. And I think today you've given two things that I just want to highlight. And one is I've actually am starting to do this with my children intentionally, because I think there's a lot of value in it. But it's this concept of speaking life into people. 
and to actually use the words, I believe you have what it takes. And so I think when we're working with, you know, all of us have influence over somebody and we all can see good in people. And so choosing to verbalize that, choosing to find that thing in people and saying, I believe you have what it takes to do X, Y, and Z. My children and I, this past week, actually my daughter, my 12 year old on her own initiative wanted to do a Daniel fast. And so this is like a very strict vegan diet. You can basically eat fruits, vegetables, waters, and grain. And that's it. And I wasn't super eager about doing it. She wanted to do it. So of course I couldn't tell her no. So we're about five days into this. We go to church of all places to be tempted and they had breakfast. They were serving breakfast. And so there was bacon and eggs in the air. And she's like, mom, I'm not strong enough. Like I can't do this anymore. I, I'm not strong enough for bacon. And so people were like looking at us in the halls cause you know, I'm being dramatic. And I, I, I stop her, I hold her arms, I look at her eyes and I'm like, Sela, you are strong enough to resist bacon. You can do this. <laughs> but you know, just doing that with people, like, you know, speaking life into them and telling them, I believe that you're strong enough for X, Y, and Z. So that is, I think one thing that we can take away from this and apply into our lives. Well, I, I, would, I would say, cause this conversation about feeling like we have to already have mastered something in order to embark on something that is new to us is such a common thought process, I think, that that women in particular have. And it made me think about, I don't know if it was a Harvard-based review or it was one of the sort of gender studies that was done as it relates to women and men who apply for jobs and women, by and large, feel like they have to be 150% qualified for any job that they apply for, whereas men feel like if they're 50% qualified, they should apply for the job. And so that speaks a little bit, I think, to imposter syndrome. And I'm not sure that you were really just referring to trainees that identify as women, but there is a gender difference there in terms of being willing to jump into something that is new to you and that you may not be completely qualified for, but kind of gets back to that road less traveled. I mean, if, if you're not willing to kind of jump off the cliff sometimes to really expand yourself and for growth opportunities, then you're limiting what you can do, I think, in your profession. That and the willingness to just show up I mean, there like you get a lot of points for just showing up. Yeah. Yes, I agree. But we are trained to like have to know everything backwards and forwards. That is true. And the showing up piece makes us feel insecure because we're not versed well enough to to do that. But I really like that you you said that and I, I think that's so true. I mean, it's it's kind of just being open. Yep to what happens and not really knowing what the script or the future will bring. Yeah. And that goes back to vulnerability too, you know, being willing to be vulnerable, to not kind of know it all, learn it as you go and to be kind of a student in the process. So yeah, I'm going to find something this week to show up for. I don't know what it is yet, but I've been challenged just to show up to something that I wouldn't typically do. So thank you for challenging me in that. And I just want to thank the listeners for being here, for being faithful and listening to us. And we would love to hear your feedback. So we would love to know what we're doing well, what we need to improve on, what you wish you heard more of, what you want to hear less of. So you can go to www.voicesinmedicine. Underneath each podcast episode are comment boxes. You can leave comments. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your listening platform is. 
and leave comments there as well. Leave reviews for others to look at. So thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe and visit our website at www.physicianjustequity.com where you can access our resource library and share who you want us to interview next. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at at EquityDocs. We look forward to meeting again so we can amplify voices to cultivate cultural change.